Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Carolina Mountford. Carolina is a mental health speaker and holds talks at schools and businesses about mental health and eating disorders. Carolina has her own experience of an eating disorder after struggling for 15 years, which is what we're here to talk about today. Hello, Carolina. Good morning. How are you? you. Well, thank you. Bit cold, but lovely. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice and crisp, so it's good. It feels like proper winter. It's lovely. It does, doesn't it? This week has felt like proper winter. I keep every morning I look out the window and it's icy, whereas I think like over Christmas it was quite warm still. Yeah, it was really mild. And and I say it's just it's so lovely when it's all frosty and yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I can and now I'm looking out the window and there's like purple hues and oranges in the sky. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) Um so I guess to start with today, um, a way to set the scene nicely might be to talk about kind of your experience of having an eating disorder. Um, so maybe maybe if we start by kind of how the eating disorder developed for you. Sure. So growing up, um, life was really, it was, home was very volatile and it was, there was a lot of instability, sort of both geographically and emotionally. Um, geographically, we moved around lots of different countries. And um, I think in total, I went to eight schools in five countries using three different languages. Wow. Um, all before I was 13. <clears throat> so, so there was constant um, upheaval and being uprooted from wherever we lived. So that was really destabilizing. Um, on top of that, home was really... Um, as I said, it, it was really erratic. My father was um, a functioning alcoholic and my mother was very sort of emotionally distant um, and absent and sometimes physically abusive. And, and so home was, was not a safe place for me. Um, it, it wasn't awful all the time. And I don't want people to think that it was, it was, you know, it was hideous every hour of every day. It wasn't, we did have lots of happy times and, um, and, but but it was it, it just didn't feel safe and I grew up sort of perpetually compared to my two older brothers um and but I think that the final thing that that really sort of catapulted me into eating disorders was um in between my two brothers my mother had had a baby girl um we all knew about her um, but we didn't know many details. We knew that she died on the same day and we knew kind of how she died, um, but she was never really spoken of. And because we didn't live in a family environment where you know we would have these sort of meaningful, deep, intimate conversations, we never really talked about it. <clears throat> and also I didn't have that sort of relationship with my mother. Mm. Um, but one day as, as a teenager, I... Um, I did, I asked her what, what this baby had been called, which is something I'd wanted to know for a very long time. It just was niggling at me, annoying away at me. And by this point, you know, I, I had, you know, all these feelings of 
not being good enough, not being loved for who I was. Um, I knew this child had existed. And so I always kind of felt a bit like a replacement for that baby. Um, My mother put me on a diet. Key key point, she put me on a diet when I was nine. Um, and, And of course, at the time, I was also being teased at school. And so I thought, well, the kids at school are teasing me. My mom's obviously obviously saying the same thing and so I thought it must be true and so at nine was really the first age that I'm conscious of thinking there is something wrong with me yeah uh, and I shouldn't look like this and 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 how I look is wrong and unacceptable and I need to change um so that's sort of the 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 laying of, of laying the ground really for for what came later which was in my teens when I asked my mother um, what this baby had been called and she said Carolina and or oh, two things sort of happened my, my world sort of collapsed and I sort of you know felt the earth sort of open up and I sort of fell in um, but all those feelings that I had had of of not really being loved for who I was um being that replacement child they suddenly it all suddenly all made sense and because until then I kind of thought why you know where are these feelings coming from and 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 yes I knew that you know to a degree I I could attribute it to to this baby that had died because she was a girl and I was not the not the next child to survive but I was the next girl to survive in the family and so that alone would have um you know, would explain quite a lot of how I felt. But on top of that, to to be given the same name, um, I found deeply confusing and um, unnerving, and it just really freaked me out. Um, and of course, at you know, at that age, I was I don't know, thirteen, fourteen. I, I didn't have any coping mechanisms for all of this, and. You know, as I said, you know, my family was you know fairly dysfunctional. We we didn't have healthy coping mechanisms. We weren't allowed to express, you know, negative in quotes negative emotions. Um, well, my mother was, but the rest of us weren't. Um, you know, happiness, joy, um, positivity, that was all brilliant. But sadness and actually even sadness to an extent was was sort of was it okay? But anger was not okay. Um, and so. And also, I grew up in this environment where, you know, my mother would say that talking to people about your problems is a really bad idea because nobody actually wants to hear about your problems. Um, nobody, you know, pe- people don't want to. It was as if she was, you know, if you do that, you're going to bring people down and nobody wants to be made to feel sad or low. Or So, you know, don't bring people down. And and so don't, you know, nobody needs to, A, nobody needs to know. So there was this element of, you know, presenting a facade that everything everything is fine at home, um, but also that the notion that by sharing your problems, you are negatively impacting someone else, mm. um, rather than alleviating the load and sharing the burden, and possibly you know as you talk, you often come to you know find a solution to whatever it is you're talking about, and um, and so. And so I was taught not to talk about my problems. So of course, everything gets internalized and, and, and bottled up inside. And, um, and so with this revelation of, of who I was and, and, and the name of this baby, 
I had no idea what to do with all these emotions and feelings that came up. And so that's really when I sort of catapulted into, you know, my 15 year long battle with, with eating disorders. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where it all started. It sounds like such a difficult position to be in because, I mean, I guess I'm kind of making an assumption, but you know, you're with the kind of you being the next girl that survived and having the same name it sounds like it's building that like comparison but you have nothing to compare to so it's almost like you've got that comparison but then there's nothing to go off and equally when you were saying about kind of you know being told not to talk about your feelings and stuff the way that you were saying it was kind of making me think about when you were saying about not being enough and it kind of tied those together in that you know you weren't kind of enough to be able to to have a space where you could open up about things and so I think all of that tied together it sounds so difficult to have gone through yeah it it was hard I kind of um I I I kind of came to the conclusion that and this is the only conclusion I think I, I I could ever come to because I don't understand how it would have happened otherwise was that you know in in my mother's unprocessed grief, she gave me the same name because otherwise, why would you do that? Yeah. And um, and so yeah, so so that comparison to something that that wasn't there. I think she, what she did is is she projected all her hopes and dreams for that baby onto me. Mm. And um, and I think that's where the sense of I'm, I'm never. I'm never hitting the mark. I'm never meeting expectations. I'm never, um, and she did, you know, very frequently as, you know, particularly in my teens, um, compare me to my brothers um, and also to to my best friend at the time. And, you know, I was, you know, I'm not clever enough. I'm not um, sporty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not sociable enough. I'm not, I wasn't anything enough. Mm. And, even when I did excel at something at school, for instance, I mean, growing up in, in, with, in such an international, <clears throat> um, or having such an international lifestyle, you know, languages came very, very easily to me. Um, I, I learned French when I was four, um, and I grew up with Spanish at home. And, um, and so, but when I did well at school in, in languages, it was never celebrated. It was just expected. But when I did, when I didn't do so well in something, the world would come to an end and, you know, there would be sort of a riot at home and and it would just, you know, they would be absolutely furious. And, and when I say didn't do well, it just means I didn't get a start. They didn't have a stars in those days. I'm too old. Um, (laughs) You know, whatever the equivalent was, um, you know, it it wasn't that I was getting 3%. It was, it was just not excellent. And you know, but both my parents were extremely bright and, and they just had really high standards. And my brothers were or are also extremely bright and extremely capable and extremely sporty and extremely everything wonderful. Um, and, and it just felt growing up that, you know, my parents' love matched our birth order. And so being the youngest, I was kind of bottom of the pile. Um, although I know my mother would, vehemently um, deny that Um, and I think also the difficulty for me growing up was that and I didn't understand it 
was that my parents, well, my mother really, <clears throat> showed their love um, materially. So we always lived in nice homes. We, I always had lots of toys and clothes and, and, and all those things. Um, you know, I had an army of Cindy dolls and Barbie dolls, and but I never felt loved. I never had cuddles at bedtime. I didn't have bedtime stories. They never told me they loved me. So there were no words of affection. There was very little physical touch. There was, um, and and I now understand it, that it's, that's just how she, that was just the way that she could express her love. And, and maybe she wasn't, you know, because of her own upbringing, you know, she wasn't comfortable with physical affection or, 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 or actually saying the words, I love you and you mean the world to me and, and all those things. And so, but of course, you know, growing up, I, I didn't understand that, she didn't have the capabilities of expressing her love in any other way, but, um, and and she was, you know, they were both certainly very distant and <clears throat> uninterested seemingly in, in, in life. And, um, but, but more than that was that I kind of grew up also feeling that I didn't have a voice, that I didn't have an identity. I didn't know who I was and, you know, whenever we were at the table sort of talking about something, it it was generally either my parents were talking or, um, or you know, I was sort of talked down to or told her, don't be silly or, and I just, I'll never forget one day, my best friend lived um, in the flat upstairs on the fourth floor. And I went round, I spent a lot of time with them, sort of escaping my own home. And they were the most amazing family. And I honestly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them and um one occasion we you know I was up there and uh, they invited me to stay on for lunch and we were sitting around the table and they are an incredibly um cerebral intellectual high achieving family um but gorgeous with it and anyway so we were having lunch and the father uh, we, we start sort of this topic of conversation I don't, it was something about current affairs and he, you know everyone was sort of having a you know fairly grown-up conversation and he suddenly turned to me and said oh what do you think and I absolutely froze in my chair and I thought I, I don't know what I think I, I don't I don't have opinions I don't I'm not allowed but you know I could and I just I panicked and I and I answered in some really pathetic simple way um I can't remember you you know what what the question was nor nor the answer but but th that's the feelings that i remember is i don't know what i think because i've never not been allowed to express what i think or what i feel or um <clears throat> and i just yeah and then of course the eating sort of comes in and steals a bit more of your identity and uh, you know, whatever shreds of it you had left in the first place um and so yeah it all just sort of gets a bit messy and a bit complicated after that <laughs> Yeah. And that's what I was thinking as you were talking was it sounds like, you know, a perfect storm for that eating disorder to sweep in because you're already not feeling like enough. So the eating disorder can come in and say, you know, I'll, I'll make you good enough and what have you and I'll give you an identity. And I guess also when you were talking about that kind of lack of I guess, compassion and, you know, the um, physical affection and stuff I think that equally would have been a massive void that you know an eating disorder can just come and plonk itself in yeah. and and kind of take over um so I guess kind of moving on to talk about the eating disorder and, and like you said it's 
kind of goes kind of crazy and all over the place um but I wanted to talk to you about kind of the impact that that eating disorder had um you know having an eating disorder for 15 years I can imagine that there were things that were affected by that um so for you kind of are there pivotal things that you can think of that kind of the eating disorder really rocked the boat for yeah absolutely it um there are several things it robbed me of friendships um because as you know and everyone with an eating disorder will know that an eating disorder is incredibly isolating and once you know the depression kicks in and which it often does not always but often and um and I found myself withdrawing as you do more and more from social occasions I found myself cancelling at the last minute um a lot of the time and it takes excuse me it takes I think a very special type of person to endure that Mm. for a very long time and still be with you at the other end because you know most of us <clears throat> after we make you know social arrangements and if the same person keeps cancelling at the last minute you understandably kind of think well I'm 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 not doing this anymore mm. um so it cost me friendships and which which I did later sort of resurrect and um but it was really and the, but there are some friendships that that never did resurrect so it cost me friendships it cost me my job um I was working in Luxembourg at the time when things sort of came to a head. And the same family that I just talked about who lived upstairs. Um, so that was my best friend's mother. Um, knew actually how poorly I was when I was in Luxembourg. And I really had gone there. I mean, yes, I you know had a good job and, and, and I was working. But actually, I was trying to run away from everything. And of course, you can't do that. And she knew how unwell I was. And it, it got to the point where she essentially staged an intervention and uh, spoke to me and said, okay, it's time. Either either you tell your parents or I tell your parents. Because in, until now, I had only spoken to things with complete confidence and she promised not to say anything. But she was obviously worried enough to, to now reach this point to say, okay, your parents have to know now. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, and so it all came to a head and I said, okay, okay, okay. So I, I told them and my mother flew over to, to living in Ecuador at the time, and still is actually. And, you know, and I quit my job and moved back to London. And so, and so, yes, it, it cost me my job. Mm. And, um, and it sort of, you know, set the next few years on a sort of really unstable and um, uh, path. Um, you know, I had to move back to London. I was jobless. I then went back to Ecuador. I mean, it was, that was sort of all sort of quite long and convoluted story of how all that happened. But, um, but yes, but there were certainly you know a, a few years then when it I wasn't living a sort of normal adult, full, meaningful life, and um, and it 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 cost me, I suppose, just yet yeah, life, normal interactions, um, the way I operated was. Um, was really difficult everything felt so hard and um, I felt I wasn't understood and also you know eating disorders make us you know make us really manipulative and and actually not a lot of the time not very nice people and 
And I think because of that, I, I got cross with the world and I got I was getting angry with people because they didn't understand me and they didn't. And why, why can't they? I think I expected everyone to sort of accommodate me. And, and as my brother once said, um, he just turned around to me and he said, you know, do you know, the world does not revolve around you. And, you know, I often think about, you know, when I hear people, um, you know, on social media and, 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 oh, you know, we need to change this because it's triggering or we need to change this because it upsets people or we need to change this because, and, and there's a, half of me agrees with all of that. And, and yes, we need to be mindful of, of so many things. But there is an element of truth in what my brother said to me that day, which is the world does not revolve around me. And I'm the one that that needs to change and needs to. And sometimes, you know, hard truths need to be spoken. And and sometimes that can be pivotal in, in someone's. And I needed him to say that to me then. And it kind of made me stop and think and kind of it sort of shook me a little bit. And he'd never spoken to me like that. And. He wasn't unkind. He was just firm and kind of, I suppose he was also despairing at, at kind of as he watched his little sister. Um, but I think sometimes it's, you know, this idea of sort of speaking the truth in love um, is, I mean, it's hard to do because no one really wants to say difficult things to other people, but, you know, sometimes you, you do need to hear it and just sort of be brave and, um, and yes, at first I was a bit, you know, yeah. um, sort of in, indignant. How dare you? Um, but actually, he was right. And and for me, that you know, that was a, a pivotal moment. I remember it to this day. You know, having to leave my job, and, and I can't remember exactly how far apart those two um, incidents were. I don't think they were, you know, many months apart. And and so there are key things that. Um, that are pivotal and sort of made me think, all right, I've had enough. Um, time, time to get better. I think what you said there about that hard truth, I think it takes somebody that, um, you know, knows you well and that you're, you know, that, that's com- that you're quite comfortable around. But I think you're completely right in that, you know, it is so needed. And, you know, I have distinct memories of, my mum, when I was in recovery, would be on a diet or, you know, my, my grandma would say something and I'd completely despair. And at the time, it felt horrific. And I just thought, how can you be so selfish and how can you do all of this? But now, looking back, like you said, they were doing the best that they could to support me, but they had their own issues going on. And, you know, the world didn't revolve around me. So, I, you know, I can really kind of resonate you know with that um and something I wanted to ask you as well because it's something that I've been reflecting on um over the past few months and I don't know whether it's something that you've experienced but um you kind of said about the like you know the things that you've um um, missed out on or that the eating sort of got in the way of and I have been like discussing in therapy recently like my like low points during my eating disorder and a lot of them I can't remember like I really struggle to kind of like think back and I've got like images in Mm. my head but a lot of things I can't remember and I've been like tossing and turning like why can't I remember things and 
And then my therapist said um, a few weeks ago that, you know, your long term memory, because you were malnourished, was probably not able to work, which really like, I don't know, it just really shocked me because I, at the time, I wasn't thinking about kind of the medical consequences of an eating disorder, but that just really like hit me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, <coughs> I think as we become more, well, that's definitely true. I mean, malnourishment does does affect your brain in, in, so, in so many ways. Um, but also, I think as we become so consumed with our eating disorders, and, and it takes up more and more of our headspace, we have less space for all the other things in life. You know, if I look back, you know, my university years and, um, and, and sort of a few years after that, you know, and, and my social interactions, it, that's, again, that's another thing when, going back to the question of, you know, what, what were the costs? Those were the costs because my memories of those years are so blurred. I mean, partly I was drinking quite a lot at university, but <laughs> but also it's just it's the fact that you know the eating disorder isolates you so much. And and again, this is this is a very common um, description that people give of how it feels. Is that you know it's like you're in a goldfish bowl, and you can see people on the other side. And even if it's you know your group of friends and you're in the pub, but but it it sounds muffled. It's they sound a bit distant. You can't quite reach out and and engage with them, and and that's what a, a, I feel like I I missed out a lot on is is real engagement and interactions with people, yeah. when actually so much of my headspace was it was just consumed with myself and my eating disorder and um that it yeah it just it robs you of of normal life and and so looking back on those years I suppose because that's all I was thinking of I have blurred and few memories of of anything else really because there wasn't maybe a whole lot going on um and what was going on was sort of distorted um so yeah, that's I think memory is 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 definitely something that's impacted. And and as you say, it's a good one to pick up on because we hear a lot about, you know, long-term bone damage, of internal damage, of tooth damage, of you know, lots of um lots of those. But yeah, we don't often talk about how it affects our memory. And mm. um yeah, I know that's a really interesting. Yeah. And I think that's probably why it shocked me so much, because I'd always thought. Um, and, and you know this might be kind of what it is as well but um, I'd always kind of told myself that it was my body protecting me from like the, the horrible things I'd been through because you know like the pain of childbirth apparently you can't remember so because it, it protects you then you can have another child so <laughs> I was kind of thinking along those lines um, but actually you know just just thinking there wasn't enough food there wasn't enough energy yeah. for long-term memory um, yeah is is probably quite a good answer um and yes. also what you were saying about the kind of engagement I think if if I were to think about like the biggest cost of my eating disorder I would agree because like I love the analogy you gave about the fishbowl I thought that was fantastic because it it's it's almost I always kind of felt like I was watching my friends on tv like I was mm. I was watching but I just couldn't I just couldn't, couldn't reach them yeah yeah so I really like that fishbowl especially with like the muffled muffled sounds mm -hmm. um 
I just wanted to ask as well because I've I've forgotten to ask what age were you kind of for the 15 years when it started and then when when you kind of went um I was sort of around 13 14 when okay. it all really kicked off yeah um and then and then it wasn't that I had you know anorexia for x number of years and bulimia for x number of years I kind of do what a, some I don't know what proportion of people do it but it, I know it's not uncommon that I kind of oscillate between the two mm. I had periods of um, anorexia and I had periods of bulimia um, and then I had periods of something in between um, so you know I had periods when I was considerably better but still would probably still call it quite disordered eating yeah. if not full-blown um, yeah so it, it wasn't I, I never sort of yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I never ticked a box. I, I did tick a box, but um, it, I didn't just have one straight path. I sort of yeah. meandered in and out of. Which I think know. is so important to mention when we talk about eating disorders, because I, I mean, I've said this so many times on this podcast, but a lot of the time, uh, you know, we we've spent years kind of going back and reflecting and working through therapy and kind of you know learning more about your eating disorder so when it comes to somebody saying how did it develop and how old were you and kind of what was the progression it makes it sound like it's such a clear timeline and you know on January the 5th I then developed bulimia and that but it's it's so not that simple it is like you said you oscillate it's more like you know a massive spider's web that you know it's actually yeah. not clear at all um so and also yeah. I think it was what's really important to to encourage people out there is you know, just because you don't have a medical diagnosis, just because you don't hit a low BMI, just because you have a bit of this and a bit of that, just because you've only had it for two months, not 12 years, it doesn't mean it's not valid. No. And I think there's there are a lot of people out there who feel like, well, um, I, I don't fit neatly into a diagnostic box. And so, well, I, I can't, I can't really, it's not really anorexia, or it's not really bulimia, or it's not. Um, and people, a lot of people don't know that there's this huge category called OSFED <laughs> that is there for precisely that reason, which is to catch everyone who doesn't tick all the boxes. But it doesn't mean you don't have a dating disorder. It doesn't mean you don't deserve help. It doesn't mean that your suffering isn't valid. And, and every single person who struggles with food and weight and shape to a point where it's impacting their life, whatever it's called, is worthy of, of support and help and, and treatment. And I think it's so often we hear of, you know, these sort of very linear parts of, I had anorexia for six years or I had bulimia for, for however long. And it's it's just not always like that. I mean, sometimes it is mm -hmm. clear cut. and But a lot of the time it's not. It's blurred and it's grey lines and it's messy and it's, it's not straightforward. No. But you still deserve help. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm so glad you raised that because I'm so much of the opinion that if, if you're eating disordered, disordered eating, whatever it is, is affecting your life, then you, of course, you're completely deserving of help. Um, and I guess talking of help, um, what do you think, I mean, again, it might not have been clear cut, but um, kind of on your reflection, what, how did you kickstart your recovery? And, you know, did you have any treatment? I, so I was turned away from NHS services, not being ill enough. <clears throat> so that does what we all know it does, which is send you into a complete tailspin 
and it makes you feel like a complete and utter fraud and that you're not really ill and <clears throat> all those things. Um, and so off I went away for a few more years. And so I basically, what, what I just got fed up of living the way I was living. And I, I just, I knew I reached rock bottom and, and something had to change. So actually I sought my, my first help was in, when I was living in Luxembourg. <clears throat> And you know, but we're talking 30 years ago almost. So A, the world of mental health hadn't opened up in the way it has today. B, Luxembourg is a very, 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 very small, very, very, very conservative country and um, very difficult to find help. So my best friend's mum, who I've mentioned a bit, she very kindly um, found a psychiatrist for me who I went to see and um, I've, I've said this before on social media and lots of other podcasts, um, his plan of treatment for me was um, to look at porn. And um, yeah, I'm not kidding. And he actually, again, this also ages me a lot. He actually gave me porn magazines as I left his room. And I was like, completely freaked out. And I just, or felt so uncomfortable. Needless to say, I bid him goodbye, put the magazines in the nearest bin, and I never went back. What um, was so that the was my first... meaning? What, did he give an explanation as to why? I did ask him, because I, I, I was so confused. I said, oh, okay, how's, how, how does this work? <clears throat> like, do you want me? Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, he said that, this was fascinating. <clears throat> um, he said that men like, the women in those magazines and and that I should compare myself to them and therefore that should make me feel better because because they're not skeletal they're not the really thin ones and 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 so and so so there you are so you should feel so there you go feel better about yourself because you're obviously not thin feel about you and and well, yeah, and you're, you're not thin and they're not thin. And and I sort of said to myself, so my purpose on earth is to be in a magazine and please men? Yeah. Like, how does... Wow. Anyway, I, so, but that was, that was his explanation. Like, men like curvy women. And I was like, wow. Okay. So, yeah, I left there and, and, and never went back. Um. And, you know, I could have then said, oh, my gosh, they're all kind of weird and really not my bag. And I'm never going to see another therapist again. And basically, you know, tar them all with the same brush. But I didn't, you know, I came then came back to London. I found um, I found another therapist at a well-known eating disorders unit um, in central London. And that was also weird. We were in this room, a huge room, white walls two chairs really far apart, directly opposite each other. It was like something out of a 19th, it was like something out of, you know, one flew over the cookies nest. It was bizarre. And I was sitting there going, why do I feel like I'm in a white padded cell? A big one. Yeah. Really not conducive to opening up and, and kind of making myself vulnerable. And I was like, I'm not doing this. And so I up and left and I never went back to that one. And then I did sort of shut down for a few years and then fast forward another few more years. And, you know, I was back in London. I was working. Things were sort of OK. Eating was still quite restricted, but manageable. 
And, but as we all know, unless you're actually addressing the emotional stuff that's underneath it all, it will pop up in different forms. And things were happening, um, you know, I, I self-harmed once, having never done it before. I didn't know anyone who'd done it. I, but there was one night when I just, I did something. And just that one time, I've never done it since. But, but that was a bit of a, that was a red flag to me. I was like, okay. I, and several friends had said to me, you know, why didn't you go and find someone, a counselor or a therapist? Anyway, um, and I did. And so on my third attempt, <clears throat> I found this, um, I found a counselor. And we worked on lots of issues. We didn't, I mean, I'm not even sure I told her I'd had an eating disorder um, until a couple of years down the line. Then we were we were working through some stuff. Um, and and it was, you know, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, we dealt with lots of sort of generational stuff, family stuff, mother stuff. <clears throat> but it wasn't until um, after about two years where we hit a really rocky patch where we'd addressed um, something that had happened in my early 20s. Um, I'd been raped in another country. And, and so we were sort of working through that and unpicking that. And I just, that was so traumatic that I, I relapsed really quite badly. And I was probably the illest I've ever been. And my housemate, who was my best friend, who used to live upstairs in the, in the flat above, um, she was getting really worried. Her mum was getting really worried. Everyone's getting really worried except for me. Um, until one point I, I was at the bus stop and I couldn't actually get on the bus because I almost collapsed. And I managed to stagger home. It wasn't far. And um, my flatmate opened the door. I couldn't even find my keys to open the door. And she let me in. And she said I'd started to go blue around the mouth. And, um, and I kind of thought, oh, I'm sure she wouldn't just be saying that for the sake of it. And I kind of thought, all right, well, maybe. Um, but at the same time, as we were unpicking all this in, in therapy, I then lost my job. Um, and so... And then I, but I still had bills to pay. So and then I then got in debt. And so it just, everything became really overwhelming. And I just, I, and so all those things sort of put together kind of triggered me again in, into this relapse. Um, but having, I think crucially, having been turned away from services before, I, I, I told everyone there's absolutely no way I'm going anywhere near a doctor again, um, just for fear of being turned away a second time. And, and I thought, I'm not, I'm not putting myself through that. It's just too risky. And so I kind of put my hands up and I said, okay, okay, I, I will get better, but I'll, I'll do this my way. And, and so I did with my therapist and, you know, a few amazing friends who kind of stood by me, including my housemate <clears throat> and, and my faith. I'm a Christian and, um, you know, without it, I really wouldn't be here. Um, and those three things have undoubtedly been the characteristics of, of, of my recovery. Um, you know, my, my therapist wasn't, she wasn't eating disorder specialist, um, but she was interested and she cared and she researched. Um, and I mean, it was a little bit like the blind leading, leading the blind, especially with the whole learning to eat again. Mm. and because I didn't have any dietetic 
input. I didn't have a dietitian. <clears throat> I had no sort of clinical supervision <clears throat> in in my recovery. And I think that uh, if I, you know, if there are people listening, thinking, you know, what 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 is really good to have in recovery? I would say a really good therapist and a dietitian. Yeah. Because learning to eat again is incredibly difficult. It's in physically painful. Um, and it's very hard to know what is normal physical pain because your body is so messed up uh, versus what is actually just you've chosen to eat the wrong thing at the wrong time. Mm. So I would really encourage anyone who is thinking about or starting on, on recovery, um, you know, as, as a minimum, I would encourage a, a therapist and, and a dietitian if you can get one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and here I am, you know, eight, 18 and a half years later, <clears throat> and I'm free, and it's amazing. <laughs> and I could never in a million years have imagined living life the way it is today. Honestly, it's, I mean, even 10 years ago, um, it, yeah, shopping for food in a normal, amount of time without spending two hours shopping for 10 things and looking at the backs of all the packets um you know going out for impromptu meals um on the rare days when I you know I'm out for lunch and dinner it doesn't happen very often but you know not not doing that thing of looking at the menu and thinking oh okay well what I'm going out tonight so I need to make sure that I don't eat too much you know none of that and it it's genuine freedom and and that is one of the messages that I am most passionate about communicating to people because so often I hear the same, it's, it's the same narrative that we hear with, with alcoholics often. It's, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And once you've got an eating disorder, well, you've got it for life to a greater or lesser degree. But, you know, people say, you know, well, you're gonna have to, I'm gonna have to manage it or cope with it or live alongside it or in some way compromise my life and kind of accommodate it in some way. And I just say, no, don't, don't stop, you know, halfway up the mountain. And, and I think a lot of, you know, cause at the bottom it's all, you, you can't see the views and it's all really difficult at the bottom and it's all uphill. And then, um, you know, you sort of get halfway up the mountain and you look around you and the views are amazing. And, and you look back and you see how far you've come up and you kind of think, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is so good. And that's, to me, that's, that's kind of what I would call recovery. Mm. But look up and there's still a bit more to go. And I know recovery is exhausting and you can't keep going up a mountain nonstop. You, you need to pause. You need to take breathers. You need to have a rest. But keep moving up the mountain. And the top of the mountain is often the steepest, but it's also the shortest bit. Mm. When you get to the top, you get the full 360 panoramic view around you. And, and, and that to me is, I don't know, I just, I've used that analogy a lot and, and, and people seem to be able to relate to it. And, um, and, and that to me is, is the difference between recovery and freedom. Absolutely, you can recover and you can get to a point where life is good, everything's manageable, you're enjoying certain things, you're, you know, but other things you are still managing. You're not getting the full 
yeah, you're just not fully, fully, fully free. Um, and and I, I do believe it's possible. I mean, it, it's just a matter of time. You can't you can't rush recovery. You can't. <clears throat> and everyone takes a slightly different route up the mountain, and some people do travel up different bits at different paces. But eventually, you know, everyone can get to the top. And and just as an example, I think I would say several years ago. Um, my son, my eldest, said to me one day, he was quite young, he said, Mommy, why don't you eat when you're cross? I could have said, pardon? And he said, if you're cross, you, you don't sit down and have your meal with us. And I stopped and thought, and I thought, Oh my goodness, he's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. If we've if there's been an argument or something's happened immediately before a meal, as I'm preparing lunch or dinner or whatever, or during lunch or dinner, I would I would suddenly push my plate away and I would either a terrible example to set, but but it that was my default is if I'm cross I don't eat, um, was to push my plate away and leave the table or, and I suddenly thought and I said do I do that? He said yes and I thought. Honest, you are absolutely right. Now, I had a choice in that second. I could say, well, I'm sorry, darling, but that, that, that's just how I am. I, I can't eat when I'm feeling cross. Or I could say, oh, crumbs, I do do that. And a lot of the time I'd be looking at this picture food thinking, I've made it and I know that that's really nice. And I <laughs> actually know that I would enjoy it if I ate it. I'm just, you know. So I could either just accept it as, well, that's part of who I am, or I could tackle it and say, okay, I'm going to work to change it. And so that's what I did. And so that's just another step up that mountain. I could have carried on as I was and it, you know, life could have been okay. And, and so it's just that, you know, with everything that comes up, every little, you know, every behavior, every pattern, just trying to chip away at it. Um, it's just, it's so worth it. And also, I mean, with my kids I'm really conscious of trying to set a good example and and you know not using food as a and so yeah but and it doesn't matter I think whether you've had your eating disorder for two months two years or 15 years or even longer that there is hope for freedom for everyone and it, it really doesn't need to be a life sentence yeah. um I yeah. got quite emotional when you were talking then. I don't know if you saw me, I was blubbering a little bit because when you were talking about that mountain, I think I've been kind of stuck in the being able to see the views and it's lovely, but not that full freedom. And I'd kind of, you know, if I'm being <laughs> honest, I'd said to myself, this is it now. This is kind of where you're at. Um, I still go to therapy and I'm still working away at things, but I think in my if I'm being deadly honest in the back of my head I thought this is kind of it so hearing you say that it doesn't oh. have to be it and there can be freedom I think yeah like you know it's it's so inspiring to hear um oh I'm so pleased so, yeah I yeah I feel a bit like um blubbery now um but also like I noticed your your tattoo um oh. which when I saw that, that's what made me get all blubbery. So Caroline has got a tattoo on her wrist that says, I am enough. And I think that ties in so nicely with, you know, how we started this podcast with you saying that you're not enough. Um, and actually, 
again um like my therapy over the past few weeks has been about kind of talking about being enough so that really really kind of yeah I feel really like warm and just a lot of inspiration so thank you Carolina um what you've been wanting to ask I did just want to ask you a couple of questions that we've had yeah. from the listeners I, I want to carry on talking to you forever um yeah. so I'm sad that we have to kind of pull this to a close um one of the questions that we did have from the listeners was that is full recovery possible but I think you've given such a beautiful answer um about that so apparently it is completely possible so that it is super really, exciting really is. um and then the other question um which I wasn't sure which whether it was going to be relevant but I think kind of from what you were just saying about your son it is um so somebody has just said you know even you know if if you are in recovery that concern of potentially passing on behaviors to your children um so they were just kind of looking for some advice in navigating that yeah it's do you know it it's a really hard one because so you know we live in a culture where it is so normal to talk about good foods bad food being good having a treat um, feeling fat oh my cheeks my chin my bum my waist you know what it and, you know, full disclosure here, I caught myself the other day saying something, and I can't remember what it was, but it was something about, oh, that's right. Um, my youngest son has really got into baking recently, like really, really, really good. Well, he got into baking during lockdown, um, but he's really, really got into baking. And I said, and he wants to bake, you know, every weekend he's baking muffins and cookies and cakes and um and I, I said something about, um, you know, I, I don't think we need cakes every weekend or, or something. I can't remember exactly what the words were. And as soon as I was saying it, I was like, oh, no, no, just take it back, take it back. And it's, you know, it is, it is so ingrained in us. So my advice would be, we will say things that we regret. We are human. We, we, none of us are perfect. Um, I think the important thing is is more what's the atmosphere around? You know, it's important. You know, we're not constantly oh my jeans don't fit. I'm too fat. I need to go to the gym. I need to lose it. You know, if that's what they're hearing all the time, then that is incredibly damaging. A constant preoccupation. And I think yes, of course. You know, we need to do the best we can. We need to be mindful in as much as we're able to about the language that we use around our children and, and, and to normalize, you know, eating everything, too much of anything. I mean, you know, there was a girl at school who ate too many carrots. She turned orange. She must have been eating 30 carrots a day. She was a gymnast. So she probably had some sort of eating disorder. Um, so, you know, too much of anything isn't a brilliant idea. So just, you know, have a bar of chocolate, have an apple, have pasta, have, you know, everything is okay. Um, you know, allowing everything, permitting everything. Um, I think it's just trying as much as we can to model just really healthy um, eating patterns, really helpful language. Um, but I think crucially is helping them to talk about what's going on, is communicating. Because if we stop to think about it, it's not about the food, is it? We say this all the time, eating disorders. 
aren't really about the food. It's about what's going on. And so I know that if I had had tools and mechanisms and, and the space and people that I could have talked to, I may have, have been able to avert the course of my life. Um, and so I think it's important to give our children the space to feel angry, the space to feel sad, the space to feel confused and ask the questions. Because if, you know, talking helps. And, and, and I think that is as important, if not more so than, than the other stuff. Well, I'd probably say as important. Um, because what we don't want them to do is to internalize any emotional pain or confusion that they might be feeling. Um, but yes, but in terms of what we say, try our hardest and be as mindful as we can, but recognizing that there will be times when we inadvertently do say something that we perhaps later regret. And, but then just try and, you know, sort of redress the balance. And, mm. um, you know, as long as it's not, you know, that that is the constant atmosphere at home is the focus on food and diet and appearance and exercise. And um, I think we'll probably be okay. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we're all human, aren't we? And, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but I think it's, you know, learning, you know, what was the outcome? Was it great? And, and if not learning from kind of that. And I guess I have a question, um, just kind of going back to when we were talking about uh, that, like full recovery. Um, yes. Do you think, so the way that I'm like doing it at the moment, and this is quite a specific question, but I hope that other people can relate to it as well. Um, do you think like wiggling out those those final sort of behaviors or thoughts that are kind of keeping you kind of they're keeping like a pinky finger in the eating disorder is it just about being honest with yourself and and kind of recognizing when it might be a disordered behavior and sort of working through that or do you think there's there's more to it um i think honesty is a huge component of recovery um, and I say, especially further down the line, when you're better able to be honest with yourself, you know, at the beginning, you, you know, our minds are so distorted and the eating disorder has too much power. But further down the line, when we're in a stronger, better place and we are able to um, to be really honest, because it's, it's all good and well asking ourselves the difficult questions. Mm. But, but that's pointless unless we are prepared to be brutally honest with ourselves and you know I give the case of um, you know when my son challenged me on not eating when I was angry um, another case for someone who over exercises for example is okay why are you really going for that run or why are you adding an extra set of reps at the gym or why are you you know whatever form of whatever it is you know are you really walking to school to save the planet to not use the car or are you walking to school to get extra steps? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's really questioning. And, and a lot of the time it will be very subtle. I mean, yes, of course, leaving the car at home is a brilliant idea. And, you know, using public transport to get to work or college or whatever it is. But it's those little things that we can just chip away at bit by bit. And, and the degree to which we're able to be honest with ourselves is proportionate to the degree of freedom that we will gain. Um, it, it's, it's really important. If we keep 
deceiving ourselves into thinking that, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go for a quick, you know, 15 minute run or 20 minute run or whatever it is. Um, you know, because oh, I, I, I need to go clear my head. Could you go for a walk around the park? Could you engage in some sort of creative hobby that you have, knitting, drawing, lettering, painting, music, you know, wh whatever it is, could that not clear your head? Instead? And yes, of course, fresh air is good for us and all of that. But again, it's just about being really honest about why you are doing a certain thing. And, and I think the more that we can do that, the higher up the mountain we climb, because each one of those is a thought pattern or a behavior that, that will keep that pinky finger, as you said, in the eating disorder. Um, I was gonna say in the eating disorder pipe, but that's probably a really bad analogy. I like it. it it, it does you know, keep one foot in that camp and, and we want to get as far away from that camp as, as we possibly can. So yes, honesty is absolutely um, crucial, I would say. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm glad that you, you think that that's, and I think all that you've said, you know, about the environment and getting some fresh air and all of that, they're all things that I've heard so much um, from myself and from others. And I think, you know, just being able to pause and think you know what is actually my intention here um yeah. because it's so easy to say oh, I'm just doing it because it's good for the environment because who's going to argue with that um, yeah although yeah. that I guess if somebody is listening and there's somebody supporting somebody through this I would say kind of what you were saying about those the hard truths earlier um mm. if somebody is coming with it you know oh it's for the environment or I need some space or whatever you can be that person to challenge and yeah. give that hard truth because I think often it's people get so entrenched in just kind of saying these excuses that they need somebody to kind of step in and say is this actually it yeah it it, it, it needs something to interrupt yeah to interrupt because it's 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 such a entrenched and, and embedded behavioral thought pattern um yeah, I think just keep keep chipping away at, at each of those that just as as and when they come up and 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 some days you know we'll be able to to win them and 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 some days we won't. Sometimes you will just think I've I've just got to do whatever it is, walk to school or go for a run or go to the gym or um, swim twenty lengths or, or whatever it might be, and and some days we'll just that's just what will happen. But other days you might just have a little bit more strength to say, actually, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. Um, because again, you know, we are human and our, and our capacity to fight it will be dependent on how well rested we are, how well nourished we are, how, you know, what's gone on that day, the day before, that night, whatever. So, it's, you know, we're, we're not robots. So self-compassion and, and, and understanding is also really important. But alongside that, just, yeah, be really truthful in as much as we can be. Yeah. Well, Carolina, thank you so much. Um, I genuinely feel so inspired. Um, I think this conversation with you has been absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank um, you so much for having me. It's been lovely chatting to you. I could chat for so much longer. <laughs> thank you. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. 
Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.